Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 13. We are going to be spending our time looking at verses 11 through 18 tonight. We spent our time two weeks ago talking about the first beast that rises up out of the sea. And he's not the first character that we have met in this scene. We are looking at the fourth of seven cycles in the book of Revelation. And this fourth cycle is really the centerpiece of the book. You've got three that are looking toward it from this way and three cycles looking toward it from this way. And right in the middle of the book, I'm going to knock that down. So I'm going to move it now before we have a scene. Um, So uh, yeah, so right in the middle of the book, you have this epic battle. You have Satan, the dragon, and he has rebelled against God. He is the enemy of God. You have the woman who represents the people of God. In chapter 12, you see her giving birth to a male child. This is Christ coming from the line of Abraham, coming from the Old Testament church under the law. Satan is there, the dragon, eagerly awaiting to devour this male child as soon as he's born, but he can't do it. Because before um, he can devour him, the child of sins, which is a reference to Jesus and how he is born, he lives, he dies, he resurrects, and he ascends before Satan can destroy him. And so the dragon then turns his attention to the woman, to the New Testament church. And she flees into the wilderness of the world where she is nourished by God. And she serves God in the world and she's hunted by Satan. And she's under siege by Satan. But wherever she's serving God, there she finds refuge in her Lord. And chapter 12 ends with the dragon standing on the shore. It's really ominous. He's looking at the sea. And then we find out what he's doing there in chapter 13. He summons the first beast out of the sea, which is this mutant hybrid of the politically powerful beast in Daniel 7. It represented Rome the first century oppressor of the early church. But it is so much more than that. Because the first beast of Revelation 13 represents any state-sponsored political opposition to Jesus. Any state-sponsored political persecution of the church of Christ. The beast is made in the image of the dragon. He counterfeits the Lord Jesus. It is Satan's attempt to deceive the world with a false messiah. He wants people to trust the beast, not Jesus. He wants people to worship the beast, not Jesus. States should not be persecuting the church. States should not be going against God's good design and God's good laws. According to God's design, states and governments exist to be a servant of people. For he is God's servant for your good. That's how Paul speaks to the government. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. In an ideal situation, the government only comes for you when you do something that breaks the law and puts society in danger or puts other people in danger. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out wrath, uh, God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. But we know that governments often do persecute the church, that governments often do not work for the good of their people because they're run by individuals. And those individuals are depraved and they are sinful. And they often enact laws and regulations in nations that are harmful to the church. And when that happens, we know who is behind it. It is Satan. It's the dragon using the beast to spew his lies, to oppress the church, to steal glory from Jesus. And so at the end of uh, verse 10, the end of the text we looked at two weeks ago, you see John saying to the church, hey, if they come for you and you get locked up, you get locked up. If they come for you and you die, well, you die. Hold on and endure. But how will Satan convince the world that this beast that rises up out of the sea is worthy of their worship? Enter in the second beast. Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. 
It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Father, come to you tonight and ask that you would bless this time where we are in your word, that you would give us understanding. Lord, we're not all going to agree on what all of these things mean. We're not all going to agree on uh, timelines and, and events. Uh, Father, men who teach from the same perspective that I've taught Revelation from would disagree with me on, on my understanding even of this passage, Lord. It's complex business. But at the end of the day, it's your word. And your spirit loves to use the word to draw us closer to your son, Jesus, even when the passages are complex. And Father, I think that even more so sometimes with those passages because we have to depend on you more. And so, Lord, we turn to you, and we ask for your wisdom, and we ask you to help us. I ask you to help me, God, and uh, I pray that you would give us a solid understanding of what the second beast is and the battle that we have before us if we are not going to bow down. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our teaching points tonight will come in the form of four the second beast is statements, because I don't understand the second beast just to be one thing, but I think there's, there's a lot of things the second beast is tonight, but there's four things that I want to argue the second beast is in particular. We start with this. The second beast is the third member of Satan's counterfeit trinity. He is the third member of Satan's counterfeit trinity. Two weeks ago, we saw all the ways that the dragon means for the first beast to be a fake Jesus, right? A counterfeit Christ. The Bible calls Jesus the image of God invisible in Colossians 1 verse 15. The dragon has this beast that comes up out of the sea and the dragon's beast reflects the character and the physical description of the dragon. It's brought forth in the dragon's image. And the parallels just carry on from there. The first beast seeks to mimic the Messiah in a host of other ways. Both are slain and seem to resurrect. Both have authority over every tribe and tongue and nation. Both are being worshipped. There is no doubt that the dragon means to steal glory from Christ by putting forth the beast as a false messiah. Well, if the first beast is is there to counterfeit the Messiah, Satan's second beast is meant to counterfeit the Holy Spirit. And thus, Satan is setting up a whole counterfeit trinity. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have dragon, beast, and second beast, or false prophet. Revelation 16.13 puts all of these members of this counterfeit trinity in one place. It says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Let's look at some ways that this second beast attempts to counterfeit the third member of the true trinity. First, he tries to counterfeit the spirit with dominion. You see, the beast rises out of the earth. Well, the first beast came out of the sea. So what are they seeking to do together? Rule the entire creation, right? The first beast has the sea, the second beast has the earth, and together they want dominion over all of the world in the same way that God the Son and God the Spirit have dominion over all of the world. They also attempt, uh, there's an attempt here to counterfeit the spirit and the deception that is being used by the second beast. The Spirit of God loves to bring truth to the people of God. It is my hope that that is what he is doing right now as we are speaking, right? Well, in the same way, the second beast has a message. The Spirit of God loves to take what the Son has spoken and bring it to us. 
Well, the second beast loves to take the message of the dragon and bring it to the world. It looks like a woolly lamb, right? The second beast looks like it's nice, maybe even cute, but it talks like Satan. It talks like a lying dragon, which is why in Revelation 16, verse 13, you see the second beast being called a false prophet because he is a liar. In John 14, 17, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. Later on in verse 26, he says that the Spirit will teach the apostles all things and bring to remembrance all that the Lord Jesus said to them. I love that verse because it's one of the reasons we can trust the process that God used to recall what the apostles saw and heard from Jesus to write it down and and, and give it to us as Scripture through the inspiration of the Spirit without error and it will not fail us. He guides the church into all truth. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. God's Spirit does not deceive. He's a truth teller. He tells us the truth by giving us the words of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He gives us the words of Jesus. But the second beast, he deceives. He looks like a lamb, but he deceives by speaking like a dragon. He's a liar. He mimics the spirit in spreading a message, but it's a counterfeit message. All he's doing is preaching Satan's sermon. Tries to mimic the spirit in terms of authority. You see in verse 12, the second beast mimics uh, the spirit by exercising the authority of the first beast. Who else doesn't speak on their own authority, but on the authority of what he hears? The spirit. Jesus said it, he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. In seeking to uh, get worship for the first beast, the second beast is counterfeiting the spirit of God. You see in verse 12 that the second beast makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Again, it's a counterfeit of what the spirit does. The Holy Spirit wants you to worship Jesus. That he, he loves for you to bow down to Jesus, to glorify Jesus, to sing to Jesus, to be in love with Jesus. When you stop and you go, Jesus is beautiful, the Holy Spirit says, job done. Awesome. That's great. He loves that. Jesus said, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that is exactly what you're seeing the second beast doing. He's trying to get people to glorify the first beast, to bow down. You also see the second beast counterfeiting the spirit with signs and wonders in verse 14. John says that the second beast uh, performs great signs, makes fire come down from heaven, which is a reference to Elijah calling the fire down upon the altar in his showdown with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And the reason that this is referenced is because in the Old Testament, the spirit of God rested on prophets like Elijah. And so here we have the second beast attempting to produce the same sort of events that would convince people then to say, oh, we should listen to the second beast and we should worship the first beast. On Sunday mornings, we've been talking about the signs and wonders that came with the early church, that came with the apostolic age. Pentecost happens, the Spirit of God's poured out, and Peter stands up and he points to Joel 2 and he says, we can explain what's happening here by this 800-year-old prophecy in Joel, which says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. The second beast is attempting to produce the same sorts of signs and wonders that are being produced in the early church in order to get people to worship the first beast. It's reminiscent of Pharaoh's magicians trying to counterfeit the work of God in the generation of Moses. And then finally, we have the number of the second beast, 666. A lot of ink has been spilled on the meaning of this number. Uh, I think you could argue that maybe uh, you could do some work with uh, an alphabet and, and numerical values of that alphabet, and maybe this is referring to a certain Roman emperor, maybe, but I think a lot of that ink could have been better spent on other things. In verse 18, it says, this calls for wisdom. 
Okay, so this isn't a riddle uh, that is going to be answered with the world's ideas and the world's answers. This is something that's only going to be understood if we have the wisdom of God. And so I think that the number 666 is meant to point us beyond itself to perfection. To say that number looks incomplete, that number looks wrong, it looks infinitely wrong. It's wrong, wrong, wrong. It's incomplete, it's insufficient. Because throughout the book of Revelation, what we have seen is that the number seven is God's perfect number. It's the number used to describe his perfect spirit before the throne. It is the number used to describe all the churches throughout history who would read the book. It's the number used to uh, describe the seals and the trumpets and the bowls to show us God's perfect activity in all of history. The number six, on the other hand, is not the number of God. It falls short comes right up to his standard and it falls on its face. And it's tripled here to show the completeness of the incompleteness of this counterfeit trinity. To show just how fake and how plastic it is. Down to its core, it's not real. And anyone who would take the mark, anyone who would cast their lot with the ungodly is buying in on it. Joel Beakey says, many have attempted to interpret the number of the beast, and their theories range from the Pope's phone number, I like that one, to a special number on a computer, to the name of a particular man reduced to number by a code. Again, I think you could argue that maybe it is referring to an emperor, but even if it is, I think that the bigger point behind the number is that it falls short. And anybody who would listen to the second beast, bow down to the first beast because of the words of the second beast, they too fall short of God's standard and will fall on their face before him in judgment. Let's keep going. We will come back around to that. Let's move along though. The second beast is also the Roman imperial cult. So it is the third member of the counterfeit trinity, but it's also the Roman imperial cult. Last uh, Two weeks ago, we said that people that were sitting there in the first century and, and they were hearing this being read, like people in Pergamum, people uh, in Thyatira, they're hearing this being read. They're not going, man, I wonder if that's like, if, if Elon Musk is going to get all the nations together in 2023 and he's the Antichrist and then Jesus says, no. They went, that's Rome. That's Rome. The first beast is Rome. They would have known that right away. I mean, that's who's persecuting us. The first beast is Rome. Well, if that's true, then who would they identify as the second beast? They would say the Roman imperial cult. Because the Roman imperial cult was the religious arm of the Roman emperor. The Roman emperors wanted a unified, submissive empire. And they determined that religion were the means to get it. They really didn't mind if you wanted to keep peacefully worshiping your gods. You can keep your gods. You prescribe a religion, whatever religion you want to. But underneath the umbrella of bowing your knee to the emperor. You can worship your god as long as you're willing to get down on your knee and say Caesar is Lord. And when you say Caesar is Lord, you're ascribing ultimate authority to him. You are saying that he is divine. That's what the Roman imperial cult taught. Uh, imperial cult taught. And that is what they demanded. The Caesars are divine, the Roman emperors are divine, and you must bow your knee to them. Do whatever you want underneath that umbrella. You can do whatever little religion you want, and as long as you don't cause a riot or anything, we won't get involved, but you bow your knee to Caesar as a divine lord. Pergamum was the headquarters for emperor worship, but Ephesus was also a city where it flourished. In fact, listen to how Craig Keener talks about the building projects for the cause. He says, Augustus, the emperor, had allowed Ephesus to build two temples in his honor, and Domitian had named Ephesus guardian of the imperial cult, making it the foremost center of the imperial cult in Roman Asia. When verse 14 says that the second beast told those who dwell on the earth to make an image for the first beast, it's probably a reference to the building of these temples, the building of these shrines to the emperors. Dennis Johnson says whenever a city would build a temple to an emperor, they would go up a level in the eyes of the Caesars. They would say that's a prestigious city and everybody wanted to be counted as being a prestigious city in the eyes of the emperor. And so they would eagerly build these shrines and invite the Roman imperial cult in to make it the dominant religion of the city. 
Anybody who would not devote themselves to the emperor as God is guilty of blasphemous treason. And so obviously, our brothers and sisters had a big problem on their hands. As we stated from the start, the government should be a servant in the hands of God. But it is no God. There is no leader, there is no political system, no political power, and no political party that can claim that sort of authority. It belongs to God alone. No Christian can give an emperor the sort of devotion that can only belong to the resurrected Christ. First century believers, as they were faced with this decision to bow the knee or to be persecuted, would have taken their cue from Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Daniel 3, who were commanded to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold. And they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. By the way, that's an example of how we should always pray. Did you catch what they did there? God can deliver us, God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're going to bow down and worship him. That's how we pray, right? God can heal. God will heal. Even if he doesn't heal, we're going to give him our worship and count it as his will. But those Asia Minor churches, they would have thought of Daniel's friends, and they would have said, we have to stand strong. We cannot bow the knee. We cannot believe the message of the second beast and bow the knee to the first beast. And they would have heard this, and they would have said, that's the Roman cult, and we must resist. You actually see Jesus addressing the imperial cult when he writes to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. The Roman imperial cult was established when the Lord Jesus' ministry began, right around that time in the early 30s of the first century. But you can see from Jesus' words that by the time you get to the 90s of the first century, our brothers and sisters are losing their heads over this. They're being killed. They're being slain. This is what John refers to in verse 15 when he says, those who will not worship the image of the beast will be slain. Those who will not bow the knee, those who will not go down to the temple and bow down to Augustus, bow down to the Caesars as if they are lords, they will be slain. You see a little bit more of this counterfeit business in verse 15 when the image of the beast is given breath and the ability to speak. Who gives breath and the ability to speak? Well, on Sunday mornings, haven't we seen the Holy Spirit of God giving breath to the early church and giving them the ability to speak the gospel? This is more fakery. It's more mimicking. And the counterfeit is producing a counterfeit. Listen to what Psalm 115 says about idols. It says, They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. The second beast is trying to deceive those who dwell in the earth to believe that God's word is lying about idols. The Roman imperial cult and their temples and their shrines were the essence of disgusting idolatry before God. For the cult to try and convince the people who dwell in the earth that the emperor is actually divine, that there is life and there is wisdom in his message. This was a direct opposition to the words of the psalmist. And so the second beast is saying, don't listen to God, idols can speak. Idols will take care of you, the beast will take care of you. The beast is nice. Unless, you know, you don't bow down to them, they don't cut your head off. But the beast is nice. For the church to stand against this cult, uh, this cult the, the Roman imperial cult, was for them to endanger themselves and their children and their loved ones. And you see this being spoken of in verses 16 and 17, which talk about that mark of the beast. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that none can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. 
A lot of people have read this and thought this is some sort of like barcode or, or, or brand marking that people will need to have in the end times in order to be able to participate in the economy. Even some like modern commentary has said maybe it's like a QR code that you have tattooed onto your body or that you have to carry around in your phone. Uh, and, and they take this symbol literally. I would argue that's an interpretive misstep because I think the mark is clearly a counterfeit to the seal that's given to the saints in Revelation 7, the seal that we're going to see on the saints at the beginning of Revelation 14. Remember, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. This mark is another attempt by the dragon to counterfeit the work of God. A seal is a sign of ownership. In the days of the Roman Empire, servants were marked with the seal of their owner. It showed who they belonged to. It showed who they served. And so here, the seal is not literal, and the mark of the beast is not literal. They are both symbolic. And they both demonstrate who you follow. Those who are sealed on the forehead... By God, these are the servants of God, and they are showing that they belong to the Lamb. They serve the Lamb. But those who have the mark of the beast, they show that they belong to the dragon and his beasts. They dwell on the earth and they serve the beasts. The reason that we're talking about the hand and the forehead goes back to Deuteronomy 6.8. Remember what the people of God are to do with the commands of God? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. And so the people on the earth here, they have marked their forehead, and they have marked their right hand with the mark of the beast, showing that they have taken the philosophies of the world, and they have absorbed them in their mind, and they believe them. And the fact that it's on their hand, the right hand, the main, uh, the main part of your body associated with action in the ancient world, shows that they are not just believing those things, they're acting on them. And those things have gotten to their hearts as well. We know that. Nothing goes from your head to your hands without going through your heart. Understand that. Like if you're doing something, you're doing it because your head has come to a decision about it and, and it said, I want to do this. And then your heart's affections have been stirred and you've said, yeah, I'm into it. And then you do it. The great thing about having the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in your heart is often he stops that sin, right? But these folks have received the mark. It's in their head. It's gone through the heart and it is coming out of their hands. But those who do not give into the dragon-like lies of the beast, who do not bow down to Caesar as Lord, they're going to find life very hard in society. It's going to be difficult to even just buy and sell in the marketplace because all of the money has Caesar as Lord stamped on it. It's like it's got the mark of the beast on the coin. So what are you supposed to do as a Christian to go and get yourself some grain? How do you feed your kids? It was difficult stuff. They were persecuted. They suffered. Now, with all that said, is that all the second beast is? It's just the third member of the counterfeit trinity. It's the Roman imperial cult. Well, no, because you know that the way we've been doing this revelation study and from this idealist perspective I've taught from, the stuff that we're seeing tends to be going on not just then and not just in the future, but now. It's happening all around us. And so in the same way that we would say the first beast is Rome, but it's also any state over the last 2,000 years that Satan has used to persecute the church and any state that he's going to use to persecute the church, we would say the second beast is not just the imperial cult. It is the imperial cult, but it's more than that. It's the antichrist spirit of any age that attempts to get people to worship and trust in the first beast. So third second beast is statement. The second beast is the spirit of the Antichrist in any age. The Apostle John said this in his pastoral letter, his first one. He says, children, it is the last hour, and, you have, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they... All are not of us, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, 
and you all have and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son is the Father. Whoever confesses the Son is the Father also. This is an important passage because it establishes two things. One, it establishes there's some form of Antichrist coming that seems to be different from the many Antichrists that have come. We'll get to that in a moment. Secondly, there are many Antichrists who have come. John talks about how in his day there were people who left the church, which is what proved they weren't a part of it to begin with, and their reason for leaving seems to be connected to an adoption of a false belief that Jesus is not the Christ. And he says, you deny the Son, therefore you do not have the Father. You say, well, that's it. All right, we know what the Antichrist is, right? Anybody who says that, um, anybody who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Well, in John's generation, yes, that is what the Antichrist spirit of the age was because there were a bunch of people called docetists who were running around in the early church saying, well, Jesus looked like a human, but he wasn't actually a human. He fooled everybody. He was God, not actually a human. And so John, in his age, says that is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's the Antichrist teaching, like that's Antichrist. Every age of the church has had an Antichrist spirit to deal with, right? Martin Luther stood up against an Antichrist spirit that said justification by faith alone is a heretical teaching, and he said, no way. He said, adding works to salvation, that's a heretical teaching. You're the false church, and so I reject your teaching on this, right? He stood up uh, against that, and that was the Antichrist spirit of his age. Every age of the church has to deal with it, but sometimes it's hard to see. See, the second beast is more subtle. He's more deceptive. The first beast, he comes up out of the sea like Godzilla, all right? You don't miss him. You don't miss him. Like, you really don't miss evil governments very often. Like, for the most part, everybody's able, like, everybody in the world's able to go like, hey, what's going on over there? Everybody's like, that's uncomfortable, right? When Russia invaded the Ukraine, there were people in Africa who were like, not cool. Like, we don't like that, right? Because when a beast rises up out of the sea, you take notice. This beast is a monster. They marvel at it, but they see what it is. The second beast, though, it looks like you got to take him home and put him in the backyard. He seems harmless. you got to really listen to his words to realize that he's a beast. Don't you think those docetists sounded like Christians? Unless you really listened. I tell you, if I took some of my unbelieving friends and dropped them off in an LDS church, you think they might get fooled into thinking that's Christianity? Because, you know, the Mormons, they don't just come out with countless gods and Jesus being the twice-sired half-brother of Satan at your first meeting. You know what I'm saying? They hold it back because they absolutely want to be accepted as evangelical. So where is the second beast today? Where can we look around in Western culture and find a pervasive worldview that is opposed to Christianity, that has an end goal of getting people to trust in the state and not in Jesus. A worldview that seems loving, seems helpful, but in truth it is opposed to the very fabric of God's design for this world. I'm almost hesitant to go here. In my younger years as your pastor, I feel like when I tried to touch on cultural commentary, I fumbled through it. It was awkward. You were gracious with me in that as you have been in so many things. And so in my late 30s, I've tried to shy away a little bit and go, you know what, until I'm a little more skilled in that pulpit, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hold off. I pick and choose my times to wait in. Mainly I just try to make for, you know, wait for the scripture to demand that commentary. But church, the fruit hangs so low here tonight that if I don't pick it, you might question whether or not I have hands. The secular humanism of our day is the antichrist spirit that the dragon is using to deceive people into worshiping the beast out of the sea. And I'm not saying that because I have an axe to grind against liberals. I am not saying that because I have an axe to grind against conservatives. You could be liberal, you could be conservative and be a secular humanist. I'm saying that because I have an axe to grind against godless philosophies that ruthlessly come for the throats of our children. No matter who subscribes to it, there's just no doubt to me that secular humanism is the poison of the water in the Western worldview. 
Many Americans are blown away by what they see on their smartphones and their television sets every June. Every commercial is LGBTQ plus affirming. Juneteenth is a day that should be celebrated in this country every single year as we remember the end of slavery, and it barely gets a mention in comparison with the plethora of rainbow branding that floods the marketplace. We have to understand that what we're seeing is not the root of something, it's the fruit of something. It is the fruit of the Antichrist spirit that says there is nothing more important than you. What you want, your desires, the individual. Others are not more important. Society is not important. Nature is not more important. And God is not more important. And none of those things should get in the way of you being the authentic individual that you want to be. And I was taught growing up in school that this is the only way to be happy. You evolve from mud. You're going to die one day and they're going to put you back in the ground and you will become food for the worms. In between the beginning and the end, just do whatever makes you happy. And this philosophy of the all-powerful self is the sermon that the second beast preaches in this day and time. And so the sexual revolution, which has happened faster than anybody could have imagined, it is the fruit. If you feel that you want to exchange the natural desires that God has given us for unnatural desires, who is church or society or God to say differently? If you're a man trapped in a woman's body, well then bend to reality to be compatible with the almighty self and have a surgery. If you feel you want to have sex with minors, well, since yourself wants that, we will stop using the term pedophilia and we will use a new term that normalizes it, calling it minor attracted. Have you heard that yet? That is straight from the pit of hell. All of this is in the name of self. In most of the states in this country, parents are able to give their children puberty blockers in an effort to align their outward physical traits with the almighty inner self. Children are taught to believe there are two sexes, but many genders, and gender is just a social construct. That is called critical gender theory, and it is in elementary schools. States have laws that enable school systems to report parents as abusive if they will not affirm a child's desires regarding gender. And all of this is called progressive. It is not. It is transgressive. It is not progress, it is the transgression of God's good and perfect design. And our nation and our leaders will answer for this, as will other nations who are codifying the lies of the second beast in law. And we will answer for it practically in this society because we are weaving webs with no exit strategy, just check out collegiate sports, and we will answer to God. And yet, if you ask me, how did we get here? How did it happen so fast? Fifteen years ago, Barack Obama, the face in a lot of ways of postmodern liberalism in this country, said he's not even for same-sex marriage when he ran for president the first time. How did we get here so fast? The answer is God. What did you just say? Well, he causes or he allows all things. It's all within his governance. And I believe that he has given this nation that was started by Puritans who were seeking a new start away from the beastly state church that was saying, you will include Catholic rites in your book of common prayer. And they said, no, we're going to get on a boat and leave. This nation that was started in that way has been given over, I believe, to a debased mind by our God. It's all there in Romans 1. It begins with exchanging the glory of God for a created thing. Well, we did that, didn't we? We have traded God Almighty in for the Almighty Self. Paul says, you do this so you can suppress the truth and continue on in unrighteousness. Well, if, if the self is God, well, myself is always going to be about my own pleasure, therefore I'll always get my own way. And the ethic I'll live by is, if you get in the way of that, well, then you must go. Once the glory of God has been exchanged for creation, Romans 1, 26 and 27 says that God gives people up to lusts and unnatural desires, and then God gives them over to a debased and reprobate mind. Meaning he unhooks the leash and says, you want to run without me? Run. 
run headlong into the destruction that you have chosen. Romans 1 verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Welcome to America in 2023. I was in Target Saturday night listening to a group of teenagers shouting the N-word. Some of them are white, some of them are black. Shouting that word that absolutely grates my soul. I hate that word. I don't know how you feel about that word, but I hate that word. And they were just shouting it, shouting it and cackling. It sounded like demons. I said, these are image bearers who are not even 18. This is what the debased mind looks like. This is a wonderful nation in relative terms. Don't get me wrong. I love this country, but it is a fallen jewel. A fallen jewel among, in my opinion, as an American, lesser jewels. I still ride for this place. But is there any doubt that morally the Lord God has led us off the leash? You might say, no, no, pastor, it was all technology. It was all the pandemic. It was, it was Black Lives Matter taking the George Floyd situation, wrapping their gender theory up into it, and forcing that down the throats of America. It was all sped up because of the actors in Hollywood. But listen, those are just little tools of dust in the hands of the great governor. This nation has bit down on the spirit of the Antichrist. The sermon of the lying woolly lamb is receiving amens from the mouths of Americans who dwell on the earth. We have to keep Christ as our anchor. We have to build our lives on his word. We can't get swept away in this. And it's really hard. It's really hard because the world hears the message of the second beast and they say that's loving. That's a loving message. It's a tolerant message. It's a progressive message. And then we come along and we say that we shouldn't be killing babies in the womb. We should stand for life. We, we should protect those babies. We, we shouldn't be, be using puberty blockers and, and, and getting in the way of God's good and wonderful design. Right? And, and, and the world looks at us and says, you are unloving. You are filled with hate. And they look at the woolly antichrist and say, but isn't he nice and cuddly? He affirms transgender people. You don't. You're filled with hate. You're wrong. He says love is love. You're wrong. But our Lord has taught us to see through this. We know that the counterfeit lamb talks like the dragon we know his song. It's the same song he preached to Eve. Reject God, worship self. Reject God, get your own pleasure. Reject God, pursue what you want, Eve. He just doesn't want you to be like him. You have the authority. I don't want to lose track of what John tells us in 13.15. The second beast wants the first beast to be worshipped. See, the Antichrist spirit of the age and those who proclaim it will always point you back to the first beast in some way or another. If you're a trans person in the state of Florida, you're upset about the laws that say elementary school kids shouldn't be taught critical gender theory before they're old enough to do math that has exponents in it, right? Well, if, if you're upset about that, who do you appeal to? The beast. You know, we, we've got a process here. We've got to overthrow that demented DeSantis, get him out of there. Because if we get a liberal on the throne of Florida, everything will be okay. Do you see how the second beast just pushes people back to an obsession with the first beast? In 2015, when gay marriage became officially legal through the ruling of the Supreme Court in this country, what did the first beast do? He covered the White House in the colors of a rainbow flag. The message was clear. The spirit of the age is one, and you all know who to think. It's the first beast. It's the ruling power. Let's close it out. I know I'm already over my time, but here we go. Some of you might be confused because you're like, wait a second. Roman imperial cult, okay. Counterfeit trinity, okay. But like, isn't there like a final antichrist? Capital A, really bad guy that's going to come along? 
Some people say no, some people say yes. What's Michael going to say? Well, 1 John 2.18, I think I'm going to surprise some of you. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. I believe that first Antichrist, John is referring to there, is different than the other Antichrists who have come, who are here, and who will come. I think there he is referring to the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you in any way, Paul says, for that day will not come, talking about the day of Jesus' return, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. For me, that sounds worse than the many antichrists that John is talking about in the latter half of 1 John 2.18. It sounds worse. It sounds like we're culminating here. I believe Paul's talking about one final capital A Antichrist that is going to come that will be worse than all the others before it. And so that means that the second beast then would be all these things. A part of the counterfeit trinity, Roman imperial cult, the Antichrist spirit of any age. But I will argue that the second beast is the man of lawlessness as well. You don't actually see the word Antichrist in Revelation. You don't see it in Paul's writings either. You only see it in John's pastoral letters. There are some who believe the Antichrist will not even be a person. It will be an institution. Oh, okay, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't think we have a ton of information. Uh, I, I definitely, I don't think his name is Nikolai Carpatia. Uh, I, I simply believe that Paul's writing, by the way, neither does Tim LaHaye, but, but Paul's writing in 2 Thessalonians 2, I, I, I absolutely believe there's evidence there that a final Antichrist is going to come who will supersede all that came before it. And when you think of some of the evil that we've seen, right, that, that feels scary. You might say, well, with all that you don't know, what makes you think that you do know the man of lawlessness has anything to do with the second beast? Show me. Okay, well, in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, Paul says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And for me, that just takes me right back to the way uh, that the second beast is described in Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Much like the second beast who performs great signs and, and uses those signs to procure worship for the first beast, the lawless one is going to use false signs and wonders to deceive. I think a lot of Christians are afraid of the idea of the Antichrist. They're like, is, this, is that the Antichrist, Pastor? Is that the Antichrist? We, we, got a new, we got a new candidate on the horizon. You think he's the Antichrist? Too many people like this guy. And I think that it, we, we get a little bit nervous about it. But I'm going to tell you, you don't need to be scared of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The breath of his mouth. The pneuma of his mouth. Meaning, the second beast is ultimately slain by the Spirit of Christ the very one he attempts to counterfeit. How do you like them apples, Satan? I'm going to create a second beast to counterfeit the first one. And Jesus is like, and I will kill your beast with, <laughs> with the one that you were trying to counterfeit. I love it. And then as we close, one more reason for you to not fear the dragon and his beast, you just keep reading your Bible. 14.1, and then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood with the Lamb, and with him 144,000, this is the people of God, this is the church, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. No counterfeit there, that's the true seal. These are God's people, feet firm on Mount Zion, standing victoriously with the true Lamb, sealed by the Father and the Son. See, I don't think that the Spirit of God and the Apostle John wrote this so that when we get done reading chapter 13, we're like, oh, i got to go pray. I'm so scared. I'm just scared of Satan and the dragon. I'm scared of his beasts. And what am I going to do? I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. I really think that the Spirit of God and the Apostle John means for us to get done reading this and to go, let's go get bloody and violent. Let's go, not with guns, not with knives, but let's go get down on our knees and pray Let's be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Let's put on the whole armor of God. I want to fight this devil. I'm, I'm ready to go. Not my strength. I mean, I know what I am, right? 
but, but I know who I stand with. I know who's on my side. I know who's sealed my forehead. I do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We don't fight the way the world fights. We don't get mad about politics the way they get mad about politics. We don't react the way that they react. We, we don't need to. They're, they're operating in a totally different value system than you are. You need to react to the world by taking truth and cinching it up and saying, this will be my belt and righteousness will be my chest piece and I'm going to put the gospel of peace on my feet and I'm going to take up faith from my shield to be able to repel the fiery darts of the enemy and I'm going to put my salvation on my head and I'm going to have the Bible, the word of God as my sword and I'm going to have prayers unceasing on my lips and I'm going to be alert to the activity of the enemy in my life and in the world and I am going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I will do it all boldly. I will not be afraid, for in the face of such beasts, we will not speak mildly. We will speak meekly, like our Lord. And in his words, there is great, great power. Let's pray. Oh God, I just thank you so much that we don't have to be afraid of our enemies. Just like David didn't need to be afraid of his enemies, Lord, just like um, Jesus did not need to be afraid of his enemies, we do not need to be afraid of ours. We thank you, God, that the greatest enemy that we have in terms of whispering lies into our ear, the second beast, the, the, the counterfeit witness that the enemy uses to try to fool us and deceive us and drag us into hell with uh, false value systems and with lies about you and your word, Lord. We, we just thank you uh, tonight, God, that your son will kill him with his breath. That is glorious. This is not a close fight, God. It's not. And so we just have to trust you. We have to trust you and we have to do what you have told us to do. Hold fast, hold on. You are our anchor to do the things we see in Ephesians 6, to engage in the spiritual warfare, not using our own strength, God, but using the weapons that you have given us, your word, prayer, faith, righteousness, the gospel. We don't need to be afraid. I also pray, Father, that we would not be angry. As we leave here tonight, I think that there's a real temptation when we hear the lies of the second beast to just want to get mad. As long as the anger is righteous and it leads us to preach the gospel and not just to grow into bitter, old, angry men, well, then it's good. Let that righteous anger come and compel us to go and love people in the name of Jesus and to relentlessly preach the gospel even in the face of hatred, Lord. But don't let us become bitter and angry about what we see in the world. Your word told us it would be this way. We should not be surprised. The answer is the gospel. Hold on, preach the gospel. This is what we'll do. And we'll do it by your grace and we'll do it in your strength. We need you. We can't do it alone. But with you, God, we will not be afraid of these beasts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.